Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Charles Music lives in St. Bernard Parish. He says his life will never be the same. I mean, it's hard to get back to normal, you know. After you lose everything you had. Only one picture from his home was saved. It was very hard, very, very hard to get back on our feet. Music and many others are impacted emotionally. He says he has bouts of anxiety, stress, and depression. I just want to be by myself. I go in my room, close the door, like, leave me alone. Like many businesses, the popular restaurant, Rocky and Carlos, had to rebuild too. It's a place for locals, and it's here that people opened up to us and told us about their emotional times. The threat of it all being taken away again, and the mayor saying, you know, hell's coming, you know, you really, I was a basket case. Dr. Charles Figley from Tulane University says it's common for us to have feelings of nervousness, anxiety, or PTSD because we do have traumatic memories. After the initial uh, bang of Katrina and the shock of the city filling up with water, there were these continuous insults, continuous traumatic events. Experts say the impact is widespread, deep and enduring. Adults suffered, but children did too. Save the Children released its national 2015 report card that shows two years after the storm. One study of adults found that one in 12 residents wanted to kill themselves. Four years after the storm, another study found one-third of low-income mothers suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. This is normal and natural, and these are the things that you can do in order to fix it permanently. And the way you fix it permanently is as simple as remembering it and learning the lessons. Dr. Figley says reactions will be different year after year. With regard to the anniversary, there, it's highly likely that people will start thinking about it 
more than they've ever done for a while. And after 10 years of having feelings of anger or sadness, now it's time, he says, to switch to a positive mindset. If we take a deep breath and we recognize how far we've come in 10 years, it indicates how strong we are. People are going to grieve forever. If you lose almost 2,000 people in your city, I mean, that's something you should never, ever forget. On your side, Camille Whitworth, WDSU News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, August 17th, 2015. So I have been told uh, we should be back uh, later this week. Certainly the book study group on Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. We are wrapping it up. I uh, hope that has been constructive and helped people get a better uh, understanding of what happened in Charleston, South Carolina earlier uh, this summer uh, and even beyond that, just a better understanding of what racism is and how it works. Uh, the sound clip that you heard at the beginning, uh, as I said, there is uh, increasing attention being uh, focused on the 10-year anniversary uh, of Hurricane Katrina, the breach of the levees, and the devastation uh, that took place in 2005. Uh, the continuous insults, I thought that was fascinating uh, what he said there. I think uh, a lot of black people felt that there were uh, continuous daily insults abounding uh, with everything that... Uh, radiated from that incident uh, with regards to the breach of the levees and Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I thought that clip was fascinating for many reasons uh, and I'm looking forward to getting uh, our guest thoughts uh, because the last time she visited with us it was 2013 and we talked a lot about the work that she's done with emotional wellness and black people recovering from the trauma, daily traumas of racism, white supremacy and things that we can try to do uh, to bolster uh, black mental health uh, and specifically she talked about the emotional emancipation circles. Uh, this was back in 2013. Uh, we had Dr. Marva Robinson on the program with us uh, a couple times uh, since uh, everything has flared up in Ferguson, Missouri and she talked about those uh, same emotional emancipation circles uh, and the work that she was doing in trying to help heal, help address black mental health with black residents in the St. Louis Ferguson area uh, and even how this was radiating out and black people across the nation uh, were uh, trying to use these groups uh, to heal and, and just deal with the uh, daily stress of, of everything that we've been seeing over the past year or so. The daily images of Sandra Bland and Walter Scott Freddie Gray, Marlene Pinnock, the list just goes on and on, but dealing with that and just the daily traumas that we individually deal with that maybe doesn't get on CNN or MSNBC, but the abuse that we go through on a daily basis. And I thought it would be great to have her on the program to kind of talk about uh, a lot of what has been happening, get her view and just get some tips, some reminders on things that we can be doing uh, to address and strengthen uh, black mental health. Uh, she is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate uh, from Barnard 
she uh, graduated from Yale University. Uh, she is a law professor. In fact, uh, last time she was with us, uh, we talked. She's not a law professor, a lawyer. No, no. Yeah, I want to correct you on that one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, the last time that she was with us, it was really great talking about the work that she did with the Community Healing Network. Uh, and making it specific, uh, their effort to celebrate healing in the black community and to mobilize black people to overcome the lie of black inferiority and the emotional legacies of enslavement and racism so that we can all reach our full potential. Uh, she lists herself as an activist mother. Also, she's the founder and director of Mothers for a Human Future. Grand to have her back with us, second time around, uh, joining us live, Miss Enola G. Aird. Uh, thank you so much for joining us once again. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Right on. Uh, anything for listeners, maybe they didn't hear you the first time around, this might be their first time hearing from you, anything that you think would be helpful for folks to know about who you are and the work you do? Uh, well, uh, you've said a little bit about what we were up to two, two years ago. Um, in the last two years, we've really sharpened our focus. We think that it is absolutely crucial that um, just in light of everything that's been happening, you know, the, the, the sad truth is that um, the refrain, Black Lives Matter, is a reflection of the reality that for far too many people in this world, black lives do not matter as much as white lives do. And for us, this is brought into very, very stark relief, what we see as the root causes, the foundations of racism and the root causes of the devaluing of black lives. And so we have sharpened our focus to, um, and, and our mission to overcome, to help the black community overcome, uh, heal from and overturn the lies of white superiority and black inferiority. We don't we think it's not enough to, to, to figure out ways to cope, to be emotionally well within the context of white supremacy, as you, you so aptly put it. But what is important is that we begin to develop strategies to dismantle it. Um, so in addition to the emotional emancipation circles, which we have been working on with the Association of Black Psychologists, our, our primary collaborator on that effort, and... Uh, through that, we've worked with Dr. Marva Robinson uh, in Ferguson. We've gone to, to New York, post the Eric Garner non-indictment, as well as Baltimore, Maryland, uh, after the death of Freddie Gray. Um, and in each of these places, setting up emotional emancipation circles. So we're doing that because that's the internal work. We've got to figure out how do we heal how do we tell ourselves a new story about who we are in light of 400 years of white supremacy? Uh, but we also then have to focus on dismantling these lies because ultimately we don't want our children, I don't want our children or grandchildren having to deal with this. We owe our children this dismantling work. And toward that end, we are sponsoring the first annual Global Emotional Emancipation Summit called Valuing Black Lives next month in conjunction with the Congressional Black Caucus meeting in D.C., where we're bringing together people of African ancestry from around the world <clears throat> to 
to develop action plans to, 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 to really face these two lies, to understand how they were created, how they've affected us, reverse engineer them and figure out how do we systematically dismantle it? How do we do it across the world in terms of the various places where we are? Because this is a global, a global virus, if you will, that affects black people wherever we are. Uh, you know, this, this, these vi- this, this virus affects us in, 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 in South Carolina. It was at the root of the massacre of the Emanuel Nine. It's at the root of Afrophobia in Europe, which is something that uh, <clears throat> our brothers and sisters in Europe have been uh, deeply concerned about and working at at the European level. It's the root cause of the skin lightning epidemic in parts of Africa. Um, it's the root cause of violence within our own neighborhoods. It's the reason that, in the words of the United Nations, black people, wherever we are, the, among the poorest and most marginalized groups. And so we believe that it is not sufficient for us to try to figure out ways to help ourselves cope, but we also have to work on dismantling this very systematically. So we've uh, called to Washington um, people from across the diaspora, people from the Pan-African movement, people coming from the United Nations, the African Union, people from the Caribbean uh, and Europe to um, focus on this deadly mindset at the root of the devaluing of black lives. We've, the summit theme is uh, taking control of our destiny, confronting the deadly mindset at the root of the devaluing of black lives. This is a black mother, as an activist mother, as you pointed out. Um, it, it, it really uh, annoys me that on so many occasions when we celebrate uh, some milestone in civil rights, we so often say we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go, as though we are meant to suffer indefinitely. Uh, we believe very strongly that we've got to, to see, to predict, to set an end date for this. Um, and we've actually done that. 2019 for us is the end date. It's the date by which we want to have mobilized a critical mass of black people around this issue of emotional emancipation, which includes the notion of overcoming but also overturning these lies so that we can begin the year 2020 with a with a new view of who we are, um, uh, reclaiming, if you will, of our humanity and our dignity um, and uh, taking control of our destiny. Let me stop there and, and uh, you know, get a little back and forth. But that's, that's where we are. So we, we're envisioning a 2020 in which we have uh, really taken control of our destiny and determined that we will um, have a new view of who we are and who our children will be going into the rest of the 21st century. Fabulous. Where can listeners get more information about next month's summit? Of course, you can go to our website, www.communityhealingnet.org. It's a brand new website. We've uh, tried to to spiff it up and and give uh, people a clearer vision of our argument, our theory of change, our vision. Um, and so we can you can go there and register. Registration is limited. Um, it's a two-day, well, it's a one-and-a-half-day session, so it's just the beginning. But uh, And we'd originally planned to have this uh, summit next year, but in light of all that had been happening, all that has been happening and continues to happen, we felt that we needed, we needed to call the diaspora together urgently to begin this conversation. Outstanding. Again, uh, community 
healingmet.org. Uh, you can go to the site. We'll post it on both of the faith, uh, both Facebook groups so people can access the information. Register. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, you said next month, D.C. area. Is that correct? It's in the D.C. area. So the Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference, the 45th Annual Legislative Conference, is that week. We're on on Thursday, the 17th of September, and uh, Friday, the 18th of September. Outstanding. And, and we're, we've got some really good people coming. Uh, Hillary Beckles, who you may know, who is the leader of the Caribbean reparations effort, has recently confirmed. We're very excited about that. Uh, we've got people coming from Africa. Uh, we're trying to raise funds right now because it's, you know, it's a little hard to bring people from the European network against racism. Um, and uh, so we want to have a, you know, a full beginning conversation. Uh, we won't have everybody there that we want to have there, and, uh, but, but we just need to start the conversation. And the notion is not just to have a conversation, but how to establish international working groups so that we can work together between now and the next summit and also plan the next summit. Um, we're, we're really very serious about mobilizing a critical mass, engaging a critical mass of black people in this movement by the year 2019. And let me just say a word about why 2019. That would be the 400th anniversary of the forced arrival of Africans at Jamestown Colony in our history books. We always, you know, when we were little kids, we heard this was when 20-odd Africans, in fact, the, the, the anniversary is coming up, the 396th anniversary is coming up this week, August 20th. Um, that's when 20-odd Africans were brought over on a Dutch ship, and uh, that's sort of where people begin to say, yeah, that's where the enslavement <clears throat> infrastructure began to be uh, constructed and built. And so for us, you know, 400 years of second-class humanity are more than enough, and that's what we're asking our people, uh, isn't it isn't enough? Uh, we've got to end this. We've got to deliver uh, a, a complete freedom to our children. And uh, the way to do that is through this movement for emotional emancipation to overcome and overturn both of these lies of white superiority and black inferiority. Right on. Right on. Uh, again, the address, folks can go check it out, uh, communityhealingnet.org. Uh, communityhealingnet.org uh, if you want to go and get more information register register uh, for the upcoming summit um, before we get into some of the other issues and maybe even some strategies that might be discussed on uh, reverse engineering of racism <laughs> um, it is the 10 year anniversary of, of Hurricane Katrina just do you have any reflections on the significance of that event, does that relate anyway to what we've been talking about with regards to emotional wellness and, and these? Of course. Well, yeah, of course it goes to, you know, you talked about the continuing insults, the continuing assaults. It's part of the, the trauma, the continuing trauma to which we as black people are subject. Trauma that began 400 years ago. And what's very important for us is we go into places like Ferguson and New York City and Baltimore is to send in what we call emotional emancipation rapid response teams that can help deal with the immediate trauma, to, to help relieve the immediate trauma, to do some of the things that uh, the person in that clip was talking about, but also to say, 
not only do we need to deal with that immediate trauma, but we need to set up an infrastructure for dealing with the historic and continuing trauma of, of, of blackness, right? That we, the, the oppression, the continuing assault have a profound effect on our well-being, mental and, and physical. The American Psychiatric Association says that racism adversely affects the victim's self-image, confidence, and optimal mental function. I may have mentioned this the last time I was on, and uh, our revelation that, yeah, that, that when you first hear that, you say, yeah, that's interesting, and then you keep thinking about it a little bit more, and you realize that self-image, confidence, and, and mental functioning is really it's your essence, right? It's, it's who you are. It's your ability to, to make your way in the world, your ability to feel confident, your ability to feel good about yourself, and your ability to think clearly, to analyze your situation. And so racism acts um, as a buffer and undermines all of these things. Uh, and so in order for us to be able to have an appropriate self-image uh, uh, that where we feel good about ourselves and, and, and can walk the world in confidence and can think clearly. We do need to go through the process that we offer in the emotional emancipation circles. We need to figure out uh, how we've been affected by this historic and continuing trauma. And, of course, then the additional trauma of having gone through a horrible uh, natural disaster then compounded by the, the, the mistreatment and the, the disregard and the devaluing of black life that we were subjected to there. And, I mean, all of us felt that, right, we, as we saw it, as we saw what was happening to our brothers and sisters in New Orleans, we felt it. And, and, and we continue to feel that. I mean, we've, we've continued to feel the pain and the trauma uh, from a distance uh, as we've seen our brothers and sisters um, cut down uh, this is an extremely traumatic time for all of us, and we all need spaces in which we can talk to one another and begin to understand our condition and begin to share with each other emotional wellness skills, you know, kind of, you know, how do we do mind mindfulness together? How do we do breathing together? How do we help each other to be healthy, as healthy as we can, against the backdrop of a system that, that, that seems to be tightening its grip on us? Mm, wow. One of, uh, and it, just what you just said, just to really hammer that home, I was looking, I'd been telling listeners, uh, the Times-Picayune, which is the New Orleans uh, newspaper, I think that's the main paper in Louisiana, mm -hmm. but uh, they have a big section where you can go back and you can see all of their coverage of the event from August 2005. I think it runs from August to like November of 2005. And I was going through and looking at, you know, some of the different papers and, and just getting details. And one of the first things that stood out is maybe one or two days after, oh, my God, the breach and, and just seeing all the flooding. It just starts to be tons and tons of images of armed white men and black people on the ground face down or black people spread eagle uh, at the barrel of a gun. Like in the midst of all of this tragedy and people not getting help. It's just tons of photos of black people as looters, thugs, rapists. And a lot of this stuff even came out later to be, oh, whoops, we, uh, we just got right. a lot of false rumors. This wasn't actually right. true. Sorry about all that. But damage had already continuing insults. Um, mm -hmm. But there was a, a quote. This was on NPR. There's a lot of coverage, you know, for the anniversary. On NPR this weekend, mm -hmm. they had a report 
and it, I'm just reading exactly what they said. Recent research suggests trauma can build strength. Psychologist Jean Rhodes at the University of Massachusetts was studying poor single mothers in New Orleans when Katrina hit. She has found the majority not only bounced back to where they were before the storm, they actually experienced emotional growth. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we're extraordinarily strong people. Uh, but part of this notion that we're super strong is, in fact, a denial of our humanity. And so we, we may be strong, but we've been through a lot. And um, we think that it is part of necessary part of reclaiming of our humanity that we admit that we've been through a lot and we've been through too much, in fact, and that we do need to take time to heal. So I don't know the specifics of that study. I don't know the specifics of those people. But I would be very wary of a study that basically says, you know, bring on the trauma. Uh, No, we need to bring on the healing. Amen. Amen. I'm trying to get other people who have more perspective. Again, Phi Beta Kappa here in the building. So I wanted to get what she had to say because I just thought that is the most toxic thing uh, to say to a group Mm -hmm. of people who are perpetually traumatized. Like, and I completely traumatized. That's just unacceptable. You know, I have no idea who those people are. They may be exceptional people, but for, for in general, in general, what we know of our history over the course of 400 years, we are indeed amazing in terms of our ability to survive. But our humanity now demands, absolutely demands, that we take time to heal. And I just wanted to, to just stop for a minute and recognize today that we're speaking on the uh, birthday, uh, the anniversary of the birth of Marcus Garvey, uh, who admonished us to take time to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. And there's so much, there's so much that's involved in that mental enslavement over the course of these, you know, almost 400 years here and more years in other parts of the diaspora. And so we really do have to respond to his call and, and Carter G. Woodson's call who talked about our miseducation we need to respond to Martin Luther King's call to, to free ourselves from the false sense of inferiority that, that has beset us. Uh, you know, Malcolm X's call to, to really raise questions about who taught us to hate ourselves. I mean, we've been being called to do this work for a very long period of time. And we've done it. We've had some, you know, sort of glimmers of it, um, and we've tried to, to work on it. Individually, but what we're saying is that there is really no one of us who is unaffected by this virus, which keeps um, keeps mutating, but is always deadly, always poisonous. And what we need to do now is is have a a global movement that says this has 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 undermined our ability to reach our full potential. There's no question about it. We look at the president of the United States, who has not been unaffected by it. His wife, bless her heart, at Tuskegee spoke in very, very 
eloquent terms about the extent to which no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter what we accomplish, we are always seen as less than. So the reality is that after 400 years, for 400 years, um, there's been this hierarchy of humanity with white people at the top and black people at the bottom, and sometimes not even just at the bottom, but outside of the circle of humanity. It is time for that to end. That's the reason why our children are being killed like the way they are. Why, why the policeman shoots somebody, you know, eight times in the back as he runs, and then a couple of weeks later there's some white guy coming at a it's somewhere in the Midwest, I don't remember exactly where, coming at, I don't know if you remember this, right, coming at a white police officer, the white perpetrator has just killed his girlfriend, and the white policeman is saying, take your, you know, take your hand out of your pocket, man, I don't want to shoot you, I don't want to shoot you, I don't want to shoot you. And the guy's coming and he's saying, shoot me, right, shoot me. But do you know that man is still alive today? And so the reality is that we, our treatment the treatment of black people reflects a profound devaluing of black life, a profound dehumanization of black people that has occurred over the course of 400 years. That's what we need to reverse engineer. That's what we need to fix. That's what we need to dismantle so that our children can have a chance to, to just be and not be burdened by, by deadly stereotypes and not be uh, traumatized and be in emotionally empowered to really enjoy life in all its fullness. Why, why should we always be surviving people, just surviving? We want to be thriving and flourishing people, and that's what this movement is about. Context of white supremacy, uh, Enola G. Aird. Uh, folks have questions, feel free, dial in. We can get you on the line if you have something you would like to ask. Um, just to add on brilliant commentary, uh, just I think that same devaluing of black life uh, that you spoke of that just happens all the time. Any excuse to gun a black person down, shoot them eight times, 20 times, whatever the justification is uh, that white people just don't get the same treatment. Uh, their lives are valued. You see that you know played out all the time. I think that it's the same. I think that that same, and in my view, that is the practice of white supremacy of racism, but I think it's the mm -hmm. same concept at play when you have studies like this. And I, I would love to talk to the folks who put this together, but when they put out information like this, because I, unless I could be mistaken, but I only hear this directed at black people, this notion of let's not play the victim card. We're not just going to mire in abuse. Like you're super strong. I, I just cannot recall ever like when Sandy Hook happened I don't remember anyone going to those mothers those fathers those parents and saying mm -hmm. you all are about to be super strong Billion. I mean right. this is right. a tremendous you know I just don't hear that it's only black right. people who go through daily horrors and hey 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 I don't want to hear any victim you're great and it's exactly what I think you said before a denial of humanity to just say wait a minute mm -hmm. we have been greatly harmed there should be some acknowledgement and healing mm -hmm. from that as opposed to just oh yeah. no no we're great dust it off i'm great i'm great i'm fine right right and 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 we have you know we've we've internalized that notion as well and so you know we don't want to admit that we're we're not fine <laughs> you know we we do need to take this time and we are entitled to it as human beings with dignity we are entitled to this time and we in the emotional emancipation circles 
you know, glory in the fact that we are doing the work, doing the work to heal ourselves so that we can be the, the best that we can um, in, in, in a system that, that, that creates this vice grip. Um, we can't be at our best. It's hard to be at our best. And even when we pretend to be at our best, right, we're doing it um, with, with incredible stress sometimes, uh, incredible um, uh, pain, anguish, anxiety. Um, and so we, we have every right, again, as human beings, to admit that we live in a vice grip called racism that is... Uh, has at its foundations this notion that, that white people are superior and black people are inferior, and that permeates every aspect of our lives. And, you know, the fact that these laws have been written to try to promote racial equality, we're now beginning to see, as everything seems to be falling apart, like, we wonder now, what happened? Well, what happened is that the, you know, the house of racism is founded on these two lies and we've done nothing to recognize, begin to challenge, or dismantle those lies. So as the First Lady of the United States said last year on the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, it was a very sad day, actually, because we had to recognize that 50 years hence, things were not only not as good as we hoped they'd be, but that we were actually, she said, you know, things are, uh, in when it comes to school segregation, probably in many places as bad as or worse than they were the day that Dr. King gave his last speech. That's, again, and more, more trauma, more insult, right? So you try, to, you try to integrate these schools, and what do they do? They, they take their kids and leave because they don't want to be with our kids, right? They don't want to be with our children. Uh, so... We will be in that situation 50 years from now unless we deal with the foundations, unless we go after the constituent parts of, of, of racism, break them down, dismantle them, and get rid of them entirely. Hmm. For some of our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about the emotional emancipation circles. Um, well, yeah, because they might have missed Dr. Marva Robinson as well when she talked about it. I know some of our listeners uh, who've heard you before and heard Dr. Robinson uh, and Dr. Robinson was saying, hey, this is something that you can train. You all can be doing this yourself. You don't have to wait for me or somebody else to come. You can become a facilitator. You can take the course, get the information and you can start it in right. your own neighborhood. And some of our listeners took right. her up on that. They started doing it and they have sessions planned out for the rest of the year for some of our listeners. who Wonderful. don't who don't know about all that and, and the resource that this can be, uh, how can this help people in this environment that is so full of traumatized black people? Well, I can only, I can only say what, what people have said to us, that, that you know, it's like a 12-step program for black people, right, that, that, that people feel that they, in, in this space they can breathe. They, can, they, they feel unburdened. They feel... Uh, less stress, all stuff that, that in this very turbulent time, this very traumatic time, uh, people seek. Uh, it's, a, it's a space where we can share our stories, 
um, really get in touch with our feelings, and most importantly, really begin to understand our history. We tend to think that, you know, history is a series of dates. Something began this date and it ended this date, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're beginning to realize now uh, is that, again, racism is, is this virus that doesn't really end but just keeps mutating. And so it just, you know, starts around the late 1600s in the United States and they say it ends sometime in 1865, but the reality is that it, it just morphs and becomes something else. It turns into Jim Crow, right? And then after Jim Crow, it turns into uh, what uh, Blackman calls a slavery by another name with, with the whole notion of, of loitering laws and re-enslavement re, re through, through imprisonment. And then we see that developing to today in terms of mass incarceration. Um, not to mention the fact that we enslavement ends in 1865 without a plan at all. Remember, in at the end of the uh, World War II, there was what the Marshall Plan, right? There were plans to to rehabilitate, to to fix, to repair damage that was done to whole countries. Well, there was no plan to help black people um, recover from not only the, the deprivations, the physical deprivations, it's the fact that they could not own property or, you know, they couldn't, you know, form relationships in, in, in a good way. But there was no attempt to deal with the psychological harm of having been dehumanized. Right? So there was this continuing set of legacies that we never really dealt with. They just kind of get handed down from generation to generation, and at, at a certain point, um, it just becomes too much. And so when we look at the uh, challenges that we have in terms of our physical as well as our emotional health, uh, it is hardly surprising that we have high levels of, of uh, physical and emotional illnesses that are tied to trauma. And so the question is, what do we do about that? that the only thing that we can do is stop and take care of ourselves and take care of each other. And that's what the Emotional Emancipation Circles process is intended to do. And what I, I, I really do want to, to stop for a minute and thank the Association of Black Psychologists. We, we started this work in 2006, and we had the notion of creating kind of AA-type spaces where we could have these conversations. But we knew, I mean, I'm a lawyer by training. I don't know anything about mental health. And we wanted to make sure that what we came up with was really professionally sound, not only professionally sound, but culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate. And we reached out to the Association of Black Psychologists in 2011. And uh, the then uh, sort of incoming president, Dr. Cheryl Grills, was wonderful. The, the subsequent president, Dr. Dalrose, wonderful in terms of the response. Uh, Dr. Robinson, wonderful. They've all kind of sort of rolled up their sleeves, brought a tremendous amount of commitment and love for black people, passion for black people, and passion for the work that they do to help us shape a process 
that will enable the kinds of conversations, the healing conversations that help us to understand our history, to help us understand that, that history has an impact on our emotional lives. History has an impact on our relationships. When we look around and we, we wonder why things are the way they are, it's rooted in our history. So it's, it's, it's the helping us to do that important work and then figuring out what is it about our history. And there are wonderful aspects about our history that we want to, to build upon and want to move forward with. But there are some aspects of our history that have to do with how we feel about our hair or our lips or our noses the color of our skin that that just downright toxic and poisonous. Uh, the stereotypes that, that we hold about ourselves and that people hold about us, toxic and poisonous. And we want to rid ourselves of that so that we can be as healthy and our children can, can be as healthy as possible going to this next um, decade of the 21st century context of white supremacy uh i know you have talked before about part of this the the virus of racism uh one of those products is that we have been kind of conditioned really contaminated to be very distrustful of other black people and to not think very well uh of other black people uh we kind of have been programmed to think about black people the same way that racists think about black people how do you <laughs> overcome that in order to have these uh, safe spaces where black people can kind of breathe in these emotional emancipation circles, and is that addressed in the circles that you know you've been a part absolutely. of? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. That's the that's the key. That's the key to enslavement, isn't it? The, the key to enslavement is breaking us apart, um, keeping us apart, dividing us, making sure that we we feel that we cannot trust each other, we cannot depend on each other. In that situation, right? Individuals depend not on each other, but on um, the white people or the system, etc. right? So for us, the circle itself, the creating of the circle, the coming together in the circle is a radical act because it fundamentally sort of upends the system of enslavement. The system of enslavement wants us to stay apart, wants us to not trust each other, right? And, and Tom Burrell does a wonderful job in his book, Brainwashed, challenging the myth of black inferiority of describing this and how it was done. I mean the Willie Lynch letters, and I, we don't know whether that was a whether that letter was 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 fact in in that it was actually written by that guy. But for me, I say it may not be fact, but it's true because it has tremendous explanatory power because it it describes uh, what you might say would be the way that you would divide a people and make sure they can't trust each other and make sure they don't depend on each other. And so if that is at the root of how you create an enslaved person, then how you undo that enslavement is by emphasizing the coming together, coming into, together in the circle. And in fact, the psychologist said to us that it's, it's, it's really important because we are our communal people as African people, number one, um, that, that, that we come back together and we create these circles, that we do the work together in the circles, understand how we were, tor you know, torn apart and divided, and that that is the way that we were originally enslaved, and that's the way we continue to be enslaved. And the only way for us to 
to to be free, the only way for us to be emotionally emancipated is for us to be in community with one another. Something like the Ubuntu principle, right? I can only be me um, in, in, in context with you. Um, as African people, that is a very important and powerful part of our, our culture. Wow. Again, uh, some of our listeners, uh, they are facilitating uh, some of the emotional emancipation circles uh, in the New York area. Uh, gave out some of the dates and times. Uh, they're doing this uh, once a month uh, from now to the end of the year, and I think they, they already have some dates set up for the beginning of 2016. Uh, folks are interested, just drop me an email. We can get you contact information, and you can uh, go and participate. Let us know how it goes, but folks are doing this and uh, have reported constructive results uh, from some of the people who have uh, participated. Um, and, and, and people in, in Baltimore as well, there's there's a, a circle that began um, in April during the uprising. That circle has given birth to a number of others that will be launching in the fall. And so this is a movement that is really growing. I mean, we've got uh, we planted seeds for emotional emancipation circles in 15 cities, including Ferguson, New York, and Baltimore. Uh, and in three countries, the United Kingdom, Ghana, and Cuba. Again, emphasizing the global nature of this issue and the global solution that we, we must create. Very nice. Very nice. Wow. What, uh, I don't know if this comes up in the emotional emancipation circles, but you were talking about not the importance of not just managing and adapting to racism, but dismantling uh, this mm-hmm. so that we get out of the mode of just being, hey, we are struggling and surviving to we are thriving. Uh, we are about thriving prosperity. And, uh, thriving and flourishing. Uh, absolutely. So, it, it, you know, it's a process, and it's not an easy process, right? Because one of the things that we've observed is, I don't know, people were familiar with um, math hierarchy of needs, right? So you start with the most basic needs. You need to be, you know, you need to have food, you need to have shelter, etc. And then you go up to the, you know, sort of higher order needs, sort of self-realization and how, you know, how can you be really, you reach your highest purpose, your highest potential, fulfill your full potential. And what racism does is it keeps us at the bottom rung. It keeps us always worrying about our basic needs. So, you know, so as we try to create these circles, we have to worry about, you know, do we have enough resources, physic, you know, financial resources to make this happen. We're always worrying about these things, and we, that's just the, the situation that we're in. Um, and so it's a challenge to create the space and to make sure that we go to the space all the time, that, we're, that, we, that we go there regularly because that's where the healing is. And healing is a process, and it is sometimes difficult because sometimes you have to take the the bandage off of the wound, and that hurts. Um, But our goal is to create spaces where there's safety and there's love for each other to help us through those painful places so that we get through to the other side. Uh, so when, I, when we say that these things are, are, are going well, that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges, um, but 
what we are committed to doing is staying in the circle because we know that the circle is where where we'll find healing and where we will then begin once we've 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 gone far enough down the road where we can then begin to think more clearly because part of what we try to do is to teach each other emotional wellness skills like mindfulness um, that help us to to think more clearly, to think more analytically. When we're able to do that, then we can begin to say, how do we how do we figure out how do we dismantle this in our little spaces where we are locally and regionally? And then the Global Emancipation Summit really is intended to bring together people across international boundaries to say, first of all. This is no longer acceptable. We will not live under this regime of live white superiority and black inferiority. Black people across the world making that statement and then working together over the course of the next five years or more to say how do we how do we break this down in our own within our own national boundaries? How does it manifest itself here in Brazil or Cuba or Sweden, how does it manifest itself, and how do we now figure out how we rid ourselves of it? You know, we're in the midst, we just began in January, the International Decade for People of African Descent. This is the United Nations designated International Decade for for People of African Descent. Is is that something you were aware of? We have brought it up uh, briefly on the program before, but we haven't spent a whole lot of time on it. You know, it, it, it strikes me as just really, and I'm glad you are aware of it and you've brought it up, um, it's stunning to me how few people are aware of it. Uh, we, we have an opportunity during this international decade to put a marker down and say, you know, we will no longer as African people be treated at, as at the bottom rung of humanity and sometimes outside of it. We will no longer abide that. We will no longer put up with that. And this is what we're going to do to make sure that, that, that that's just not happening. So that's what the international, uh, the, the global summit is intended to do, is to, in addition to all the other things that we need to be doing during this international decade, I mean, there's lots of economic issues and uh, educational issues that need to be addressed, but we believe that the lies of white superiority and black inferiority, which have persisted for generations, uh, are are at the root of, of so many of our problems, and that they have to be overturned if the lives of black people are to be truly valued and if black communities are to be transformed. So any strategy, you know, economic, educational, health, political, that doesn't take this into account is going to be limited. And, in fact, Dr. King kind of talked about this in his uh, last speech to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in, in August of 1967 when asked, you know, where do we go from here? And that was the title of the speech, which then became the title of the book. He said he has a long list of things that we have to do, economic, political, health, educational, but he says the first thing we have to do in order to be able to do those things is to massively assert our dignity of worth and worth. And, and then he ties that to needing to deal with the false sense of inferiority that 
that that that that we've had to deal with for four four hundred years. You know, obviously it was less the time then, but we we have to deal with this issue. And he says that any movement for the Negro's freedom that overlooks this necessity of what he calls psychological freedom and what we're calling emotional emancipation is only waiting to be buried. So when we look around today and we wonder what you know, what has happened? You know, why are we stuck? What's going on? We think that this is at the heart of it. Unless we deal with this question of our dehumanization and our devaluing, which is rooted in these lies, we're going to continue to be stuck. And we owe it to our children not to, not to, to, to abide this any longer, not to put up with it any longer, and to do everything that we can to free ourselves and our children from it. Mm, outstanding. What uh, I know, because this issue has come up before, and we've talked about black mental health um, under conditions where white people continue to dominate in terms of resources and power, and, and what's going to happen on the planet. Uh, what exactly does emotional emancipation or emotional wellness like? What exactly does that mean? What exactly would that look like under conditions where you're still having a daily dose of Sandra Bland's and Walter Scott's and Freddie Gray's and Katrina's things of that like, where you're just having this sort of abuse and terrorism of black people perpetually? What does black mental health, black wellness look like? Well, I think that it's up to us to decide that, and that's what we what we try to do in emotional emancipation circles. We we put on our dreaming and imagining and constructing cap, right? We 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 come into the space and we imagine what would it be like to live our lives free of these deadly stereotypes. What would it be like if we were healed of the trauma? How would we conduct ourselves? How would we treat ourselves? You know, our notion of valuing black lives, what does that mean? I mean, fundamentally, that's what it would be like, right? To be emotionally well would be to live in a world in which black lives are valued. Not just matter, but they are valued. And so what does that mean? We have to discover that for ourselves. Enola Air doesn't have all those answers. It needs to be constructed in community around what would I do if I valued myself as an individual? What are the things that I would have to do to show that I valued myself? Right? That's, that's a process of, of, of discovery, a process of working it out and thinking it through and then figuring out once I've intellectually thought it through in some safe space, which I don't usually have because, you know, I'm always under the gun. <laughs> in racist society, you're always under the gun. You don't have time to really spend time on that question. But if you make the time and you force yourself to go to the emotional emancipation circles like people who go to AA go to AA, you know, one of the, the visions I had when I first started talking about emotional emancipation circles was my mother's and father's church had an AA uh, meeting in their basement. And I observed that the, there was incredible enthusiasm from the people who were coming to the AA meeting, much more enthusiasm from the people going to the AA meeting than there were people going to church. And I wondered, what, what was it at the AA meeting that was so powerful that 
people seemed to be going down there as though they'd been, you know, they were thirsty and there was water down there. And the the, the point of the EE circle, the, the vision that I had for EE circles would be that it would be a space of such um, such safety and a space of such refreshing that people would want to go there, that it would be a, it would be an important part of of their daily, weekly life because it was some, they, they, they'd know that they were going to get something there but they couldn't get any place else. And one of the things that you get there is just, is just a feeling that, that you belong, a feeling that you are loved, that you don't have to explain yourself, that you're sitting with people who really understand at the deepest level what it is that we've been going through, the trauma and how that manifests itself. And then... Now we all sit together and we say, but we don't want to be, we don't want to be burdened on the, by, by this anymore. We want to envision a whole new way of being that enables us to flourish. And that, that process is not something that Enola Aird needs to tell people what that is. People will discover it for themselves in this, in this, in this healing, emotionally emancipating experience. Hmm. What uh, what suggestions? Because I know we spoke about this briefly when you were on the program before in 2013. Uh, in terms of stress reduction, uh, I think Black mm-hmm. people are under so much uh, trauma, uh, just the daily yeah. continuing insults and everything else that we deal with. Uh, what are yeah. some of the recommendations that you offer? In you terms know, of- I, you know, um, we have a Facebook page, and on that Facebook page, I know people get tired of me saying. Um, uh, we have an emotional wellness tip that we give, you know, every day. And I don't do this all the time. We do a variety of tips. But maybe the most important one we say to people is to breathe. Um, Eric Garner was very powerful when he said, you know, I can't breathe. When our children said, we can't breathe, Right. That's what racism does to us. It, it, it's a suffocating blanket that makes it very hard for us to breathe. And I know myself, uh, I spend a lot of time with my shoulders up near my ears because I'm under a lot of stress. But when I breathe deeply and fill my belly, my shoulders come down when I exhale. And so breathing is very, very important Again, radical act, right? In a culture that is so suffocating that it makes it difficult for black people to breathe, which is world culture, our taking time to breathe, to be intentional about breathing is very, very important. And when you do that, um, you get, you know, you sort of, it grounds you. And if you then combine that with sort of mindfulness meditation, which we also think uh, mindfulness meditation that is, you know, sort of for stress reduction, which we also try to to practice in our emotional emancipation circles, we think that that can help. We think that that can actually help in terms of perspective, in terms of just giving us that little space between action and reaction so that we can think more clearly. And um, 
promote greater health for ourselves. So we, we definitely think that, that these spaces, uh, emotional emancipation circles, are important for learning a wide range of strategies for emotional wellness. Um, some people are doing Tai Chi, some people are doing, you know, dancing, um, stuff that helps release tension, helps release stress. And um, people are coming up with all kinds of creative things in these circles. But the key is to be together, to be intentional about healing, to be focused on not just healing, but emancipation, emancipation from those lives, really beginning to understand the lives and how they operate in our lives, how they operate at the macro level in terms of the largest society. How do they operate in your family? How did they operate in the Nola Ayers family? That's been a question that I've had, you know, to, to ask myself. We all begin to ask ourselves those questions within the circles. And then how did those lies affect me? How do they affect how I look at myself uh, and see myself in the mirror? And, 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 and how is that healthy or not healthy? And how can I make my responses and my reactions more healthy? So it's that kind of thing that happens in, in the circle. Wow context of white supremacy. I see some of the folks dialed in who have a question or two that they want to get in uh, before I get to some of the callers. Uh, just I know a lot of people have been talking about and very interested uh, in the new film that came out straight out of Compton, which I guess is loosely based on the evolution of the uh, quote unquote rap group N.W.A., Eazy-E, Dr. Trey, Ice Cube, uh, etc., uh, people were talking about it. How does this relate to racism? Because they deal with, uh, I think, one of their more popular tunes, F the Police, and, and all of the current uh, controversy surrounding police terrorism against black people. Um, does this, I don't, know, I'm, I don't know if you've seen the film or not, or heard any of the controversy. I've not seen it. I've not seen it. Okay. Uh, but I'm, I suspect you are familiar with this group over the years and many of the conversations mm-hmm. that have revolved around whether or not this is constructive. Uh, do you think just your knowledge, anything about this this group and this evolution, how has that contributed to or impacted black inferiority, emotional wellness? Has it been constructive for black people? Well, you know, I, I have not seen the film, so I don't want to... to, to you know, be a reviewer or anything like that. I do know that there are some questions about, um, and this is true of the culture in which we live generally, the notion, one of the things we have to interrogate is the degree to which we've internalized, internalized uh, a lot of the negative stereotypes about us. And I don't think it is, um, it's a secret that, one of the major purveyors of that internalization is um, our popular culture and uh, music, parts of the music culture. So I think we have to be very careful uh, as we look at some pieces of art or popular culture that may have a critique of the police that may be good. Not, nothing's 100% good or 100% bad, right? So there might be some good parts about it in terms of the critique of the police, but there might be some negative parts about it in terms of the misogyny, the mistreatment of women, domestic violence, the neighborhood violence. And so we have to be, we have to be brave and courageous 
and not only speak truth to power, which I know a lot of people like to say, but we also have to speak truth to ourselves and be very clear about the things that promote health and wellness and emotional emancipation within our own community and the things that do not. And to be clear and honest about the fact that some of the stuff that has been bad for us has not been done to us by white people. It's been done to us by ourselves. So in any situation where we talk about black music today, I think we all we have to ask the question, is, is it promoting health and well-being and emotional emancipation, or is it um, promoting uh, the values of internalized racism, advancing stereotypes that demean and degrade black people and uh, black women in particular? And what do we do about that? If we want to be emotionally emancipated, what do we do about that? And if we want our children to have positive images of ourselves, what do we need to do in terms of our popular culture? Great points. Great points. Great points. Uh, we'll nab some of the folks who dialed in on the phone line. Uh, the number again, 760 Seven six. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you have a question. Uh, caller at five zero nine eight five zero nine eight. Did you have a question for Enola Aird? Yes. First of all, I want to say greetings to all. And um, my question is this. I have to give you a little bit of data first, and I'll be brief, uh, mindful of the people who are standing in line with their hands raised. Um, um, and, and from the New York Times in June 27th, a judge has ordered a disability payment to begin to a former sanitation worker whose disability is fear of working with black people. Now, this article doesn't uh, provide any details. Is it the presence of black people or actions exclusive to black people doesn't go into detail and there was a famous case in miami where a allegedly an african-american man grabbed ruth jackal's purse and knocked her to the sidewalk she also was awarded a disability payment for fear of black people and she's got two hundred thousand dollars coming my question is this based on these two examples i'm sure there's many more um uh and i'm going back to dr degrew's work if i'm saying her name correctly with the post mm -hmm. uh uh traumatic mm -hmm. syndrome um, right. Has the um, um, uh, the the what is it the American Council or the Council of Psychiatrists recognized that uh, Dr. DeGruy's work and your work and Dr. Wilson's work as a syndrome or a disorder is that in the books? Um, and the um, and if so, um, if it's not, then I, I'm a little I'm a little puzzled on how do we with the emancipation and so forth. If it's, I'm sort of looking at it like this. If a woman is to recover from rape, she must be in a safe place. I'm not a woman, but I'm, I'm just thinking logically. Mm -hmm. But if the rape keeps occurring, mm -hmm. I, I'm at wits to think, how does one get well? How does one, how does one truly recover if safety, a safe place is not provided? And right. you can answer the question 
um, and I'll take and I'll mute I'll mute myself. Thank you. That's a very good question. I'll 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 zero in on the the safe space. You're right. You know we 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 continue to live in hostile culture. That's by definition until we change it, and I refuse to concede that we cannot change it. For my children and for my grandchildren, I must believe that we have the power to change it. But while we live in it, uh, we have to do our best, and it's not going to be perfect. We have to do our best to create safe spaces where we can do the work of healing, and it's up to us to create those safe spaces. And, 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 and try to broaden them as much as we possibly can. It's not a perfect solution by any means, and you, you, you raise an excellent point, but we have to do the very, very best we can to create safe spaces where we can do the essential work of processing what it is that we have been through, what black people have been through over the course of 400 years, so that we can have a chance to be healthy. I don't see any other alternative. The, al- the uh, alternative is to do nothing at all, and for me that is simply not acceptable. I owe my children and my grandchildren the, the, the commitment, the determination to, 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 to do it, to do my best and to, and to, to, to try. And um, I think that that's what we're trying to do with the emotional emancipation circles. That's what we're trying to do with the Global Emotional Emancipation Summit, bringing people together so that we can purpose to destroy this toxic mindset that is destroying us. I hope that answered your question, sir. Thank you for dialing in. Uh, Person that dialed in, uh, last four digits, 3844. 3844. Did you have a question for Enola Aird? You should be with us. Yes, I I just wanted to ask the uh, guest if she's familiar with uh, cognitive behavior therapy because Mm -hmm. what she's talking about sounds a lot like it. And if she is familiar with it, where does what she's saying uh, converge with it and where does what she's saying uh, diverge with it? I listen Mm -hmm. to you. I'll mute my line while I listen to your answer. Right, right, good. Yes, I am familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, and I have to say, for the record, I am a lawyer, not a mental health professional. And that emotional emancipation circles are not therapy. They're not mental health um, sort of you know professional um, spaces. They are self-help support groups that are guided by uh, a, a, a commitment to creating a safe space, like AA's commitment to creating a safe space, and a commitment to uh, people taking responsibility for their own healing. There are times when people need to be uh, in spaces where they can get therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy or other kinds of therapy. That's not what emotional emancipation circles are about. They are very clearly spaces where people can, can, can do their own work with a focus on understanding how history has affected us in general, 
how history has affected our families and how history has affected us individually and then helping us, each of us, make a decision about what behavioral patterns we want to continue to move forward with, which, which, what, what are our legacies, our emotional legacies that are really good and useful because there's a lot in black um, history and black tradition and black family uh, tradition that is extraordinarily uh, strengthening and powerful that we would want to move forward with and we would want to share with our children. But then there are, again, these negatives that we need to, to, to understand and decide for ourselves that we want to, to leave them behind so that we can go into the rest of the 20th, 21st century uh, lighter and healthier and more emancipated than, than we came into it. I don't know. Did that answer your question, sir? Satisfied? Yes, sir. I know. Uh, for other folks, if you have questions, again, number 760-569-7676 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have a question. Uh, when uh, I contacted you, some of the cases that we had talked about, and again, just emphasizing that you uh, are not a mental health professional, you are a lawyer by trade, uh, but when I contacted you, some of the uh, cases that were very popular, uh, the Sandra Bland, uh, Sandra Bland uh, case down in Texas, uh, after she was uh, arrested, uh, they said she committed suicide, and you know it's caused a lot of uh, controversy over the last month or so. Even since then, I think there have been at least two or three other incidents where there have been deaths in custody that were ruled a suicide, uh, where the circumstances were similarly strange, uh, highly suspicious. Uh, I know the incident, Rakina Jones was another one. I know even the one from last year uh, with Kimberly Randall King. This was a 21-year-old black female uh, where she also died in police custody, uh, where they ruled it a suicide. And I think she was arrested at roughly five in the afternoon, five in the evening. And they say she committed suicide about two hours later. Uh, do you think it's it's feasible, just your experience, your understanding? Do you think it's feasible that these type of things could be happening that quick uh, to black people that are in custody where they're committing suicide so quick? Do you think that that actually uh, could be happening in some of these cases? Well, um, again, I don't, I don't know, but it seems to me that um, in some cases, whatever the end point was, the cause was sort of in the Sandra Bland case, for example. I mean, my view is that whether or not she committed suicide, and I do not know this. We don't. I don't have enough information. The treatment, the, the the initial stop in the treatment by that police officer was a, in my view, a precipitating cause of of her death. Uh, just the little bit that I saw in terms of the initial interaction, uh, there was absolutely no reason, no reason for her to be in jail. Um, so, again, it goes back to the devaluing of black life, the dehumanization of black people, 
and we can, and I, and I think this is absolutely important. We have to fight for justice for each and every one of these precious souls. We have to fight for justice for them individually. But we also have to define justice broadly. And justice broadly for black people has to do with our reclaiming of our humanity. It has to do with getting rid of these two lies that justify the devaluing of black life, that justify the enslavement and subjugation and subjugation of African people around the world, and that that today continue to justify the dehumanization and devaluing of black life wherever we are. And until we do that, uh, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working to improve police practices, et cetera. Everything that's being done needs to be done. That's part of the challenge we face. Our plates are full, and they should be. We should be working on multiple fronts. But somebody's got to go upstream and deal with the root cause. Well, mixed metaphor, but you get my point. Our, we've assigned ourselves the task of going to the root cause, and um, we're not going to give up on this. We're going to continue to work on it. And, you know, it's been very gratifying to hear the responses to from people across the world who want to come to this summit, who are saying that it is absolutely urgent and timely uh, for people across the diaspora to come together and finally say, enough, we, we will no longer be dehumanized in this way. We've got to figure out a way out of here. And um, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes is, is James Baldwin. And many of the things he says, I think, are so, so powerful and so very helpful. But one of the things he told us is that people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. Um, and to which I say that we are plotting our escape. That's what we're doing at Community Healing Network. That's what we're doing with the Emotional Emancipation Circles, what we're doing with Valuing Black Lives, the Global Summit. We are plotting our escape. We want out of here. We don't want to be trapped in this mess anymore. We are liberating ourselves, and we're reaching out to people and saying, Please come with us. We, we really need your help. We need people's support. We're in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign right now uh, because we, we need help. We've been doing this for the last, we started in 2006. We've been doing this for the last nine years, all volunteer, all volunteer with some uh, donations. We need to take this to the next level. Uh, and we're reaching out to people with uh, what we're calling a Vision 2020 campaign because we want to mobilize a critical mass of black people uh, by the year 2019, which, as I mentioned before, will be the 400th anniversary of the forced arrival of Africans at Jamestown Colony because 400 years are definitely more than enough. 400 years of dehumanization, second-class humanity, more than enough. We've got to end this. Uh, so that by 2020, we will have, as a group of people, a very different image of who we want to be in the world, who we want our children to be in the world. Um, and so we, we welcome people to come to go to our, our crowdfunding site at crowdwise.com, Vision 2020 Fundraiser Community Healing Network, to um, 
to make a contribution. There, it's all key to 2019 because we want to keep emphasizing that 2019. We want to invite people into the spirit of 2019. We want people to think to think about 400 years being enough and and not wanting to have this go on indefinitely. As I said, you know, we we spend so much time saying, you know, we we. We have come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. Well, I don't want to say that. Any. I don't want to say we've got a long way to go. I want to say, you know, we're bringing this thing to an end because we have it within our power and we owe it to our children and our ancestors and our ancestors who are waiting for us to complete this struggle. We don't need to be, you know, forever surviving, forever um, in pain, forever in anguish, forever in trauma. We've got to end this. Ashe, Ashe. Uh, the caller at, or actually before I even get to them, the address again, communityhealingnet.org. Again, you can get more information. Uh, the summit that's coming up, uh, communityhealingnet.org. Uh, the caller at 5640-5640. Did you have a question for Enola Ayer? You should be with us. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, Gus, and to the guest, Dr. or Ms. Ms. Uh, Enola, um, why is it that we, as black people in general, uh, at least here in America, tend to support our own oppression? Like, for example, um, I know we each, each of us has a choice, but like the recent uh, release of the NWA film, and I'm quite sure the N-word was used, uh, uh, you know, many times throughout the film. I'm not sure I haven't seen the film, and I won't go see it, but um, I, I'm just trying to understand why we continue to support, you know, movies like that, where it's like almost every black movie that comes out, it's at least... One person has to say the N-word, and but we continue to go and go and support these films. And then, you know, I was listening to the cows just yesterday, you know, and the, the, the Chani, I believe, was saying that uh, her bags had to be checked. And, I mean, we, we it's like we put up with this, this oppression, and we just drop our dollars, and then, you know, we're not only disrespected going to the movies, but then in the movies, you know, it's just this constant use of the N-word. So I'm just trying to understand that because that's how, you know, my not going to the movies to see films like that, that's part of my healing and emotional protection. So I just wanted to ask for your feedback. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't, I don't see the movies like that. But to answer your question, we believe that it has to do with the internalization of racism. When people live uh, under conditions uh, like black people have lived in for 400 years, and that is a long time, and it's not just length of time, it's also the nature of the oppression. We have to understand that these ideas, the notion that um, Martin Luther King in, in his last, one of his last speeches talks about the fact that somebody told a lie one day. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. And the world believes it. The world believed it. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they wanted to exploit the richest continent on the face of the earth and its people, which they did. Now, they used every means at their disposal including 
you know, writing it in books and, you know, using medicine and health care to promote these ideas about the inferiority of black people. And they also used terrorism, lynching, all other manner of deprivation to convince the world, but also black people of our own inferiority. And so a lot of these ideas about who and what we are, these deadly stereotypes, we've internalized and we lift them out in one way or another. Um, and there's a, there's, I mentioned Tom Burrell a few minutes ago. He wrote a wonderful book called Brainwash, Challenging the Myth of Black Inferiority. And he's a marketing guy. He's um, headed Burrell Communications, a Chicago marketing firm, one of the early black marketing firms. And he's turned his marketing analytical skills to understanding how the idea of black inferiority was marketed. He talks about the fact that black people, in fact, were the first, among the first, consumer products in the United States. And this is true around the world, right, because we, you know, the, the enslavement process was pretty similar. Some nuances, some variations, but basically black people were objectified and commodified and turned into products. And over the course of the 400 years, the notion that, you know, we are the N-word and the negative things that are associated with that um, has insinuated itself into our community as well. And so that's our best answer. It's internalized racism, internalized oppression, the oppression that is out there after a while with the passage of time and with power and, you know, music and television delivering the same message day after day after day, it comes inside and there it resides until we decide that we no longer want to play into that narrative. One of the ways I talk about it is that for 400 years, we have been living our lives according to a narrative that was written for us by people for their own selfish gain, right, to exploit our labor, to exploit Africa. The question for us now is, and that, and that narrative, that story, that script, has at its heart the idea that black people are inferior. To one degree or another, that notion affects all of us. Some people internalize it more than others. The question for us now as a people is whether or not we will stop playing into that narrative, stop playing, that, you know, playing the roles that are assigned to us by that script, and write our own narrative. Apropos of what Gus said, right? How do we imagine something different? That's what the emotional emancipation circles are designed to do, to create some spaces where we can begin to ask ourselves, you know, what, what does that narrative say about us? What, how, how have I been living into that narrative? How, how has that narrative affected my vision of myself, my relationships with my mother and father, my relationships with people around me? And do I want to continue to live into that narrative? And if I don't, what do I need to do to envision something entirely different from myself? And then 
how do I how do I flesh that out and how do I begin to help myself live into that new narrative, a narrative that has at its heart not the lie of black inferiority, but as we like to say, the truth of black humanity. How do we rediscover the fullness of our humanity, unburdened by those stereotypes, unburdened by that trauma? That answers your question. Uh, call at 5640. Uh, to hear from you. Glad you checked out the program yesterday as well. I hope <laughs> we had something constructive to offer. Uh, the caller at uh, 6353. 6353. Did you have a question for Enola Ayer? I think uh, that you're on the right track with the emancipation circles. I I think it's an idea whose time has arrived, and it certainly resonates with me. Uh, my interest is that not everyone in a given circle is going to be at the same place. Um, there would, I would imagine, the ranges of safe place needed, and I would think that the degree mm -hmm. of safety needed would vary. And Absolutely. I just wondered as a question um, if... This is indeed a dynamic, something that you've noticed, and how has mm -hmm. your group handled that, number one? And number two, when you come into the emancipation uh, circle invigorated, how do you not get stuck? Yeah, there's a history here. We want to move on to realization that we are capable of creating solutions. So how do you not get to get stuck? Absolutely. One of the things that we do at the very, very beginning is to talk about our strengths because we've got incredible strengths. That's why we're still here. That's why we're still here sort of kind of in our right minds, right? But what we wanted to do is get back into our righteous minds. We, You know, in, in uh, the great debaters, uh, Denzel Washington delivered a wonderful... Hello? We can hear you. We can hear you. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, he delivers this wonderful line where he actually recites portions of the Willie Lynch letter, and he says that you know the people at at this 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 school with teaching these young people how to debate are his job is to to help the young people get keep and stay in their righteous minds, and that's what we're trying to do whatever that is right we don't we don't really know but what we do know is it's a clear understanding of you know ourselves as as worthy valuable human beings that that question of self-image people of confidence and mental functioning that is um that it's a, at, a, at the highest level because we're no longer under this, this traumatized, um, stress-induced, uh, in this stress-induced situation. So we want to help promote that heightened self-image, self-confidence, and, and mental, optimal mental functioning. And a very big part of that is recognizing that there are incredible strengths in the black community. And one of the things, and, and in, our, in our families and the, 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 the legacies that have been handed down to us, we spend a lot of time fleshing out those strengths so that they become kind of a toolkit for us 
to be able to refer to as we deal with with the lies, as we deal with unpacking those lies, how they've affected us, what are the strengths that we have to counter that. And uh, the the other part of it that we, we feel very strongly about is that these circles are not, these, these circles are the gateway to our ultimate freedom. And so we don't come to them with an attitude of, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is just hard, painful work. It, it is painful work. It's hard work, but it's also work that's getting us through. So we come to it with a sense of anticipation and excitement and uh, a sense of discovery that we're not staying here at all. This is, this is the way out. This is the way out. Uh, there's a Sankofa element to it. The way out must necessarily include some time spent back there so that we really understand uh, how we got here and what we need to do to move forward, to move from surviving to thriving and flourishing. I hope that answers the question, but but it, they, they're not they're not depressing, although they might seem like there might be. There might be moments where this is really hard, but one of the things we do is we help each other through those hard places uh, with a spirit of love, with a spirit of respect for each other's human dignity. We help each other through those hard places, and there is quite a bit of joy. Um, in these emotional emancipation circles because we're, we're able to breathe. We're able to, to, to be in a place where we're unencumbered in a way that is a little unusual because we're, so, we're always so tight outside of those places. So it, it is, for many of us, a place where we can breathe, a place where we can be refreshed, and that way... You know, it's it's not we're not just staying in the pain, but we're we're working our way through it. The other part of the the caller's question, they were just saying, um, people come to the group right in different spaces, right? And yeah. so, how do you how do you uh, accommodate that in a group with a lot of different people? Right. Well, I mean, a lot of it is improvisational. One of the you know things that I say to people is. Um, a community healing network has issued a call in the African spirit. We've issued a call and, and we expect response so that um, we don't have all the answers. So the, the circle has to work its, its, its own will, its own way. So it, the circle leaders and facilitators have to ask, you know, what do you need to make this a space that will work for you? How does the group construct the space in a way that works for the members of the group. It's not a kind of you know, top-down kind of thing, but it's designed to be flexible, designed to ask questions about how do we need to change this, to modify this, to be of help to each member of the group. Sometimes, if you have a group that is a gender-integrated group, there might be times where the men in the group want to go off by themselves and have conversations by themselves and then come back to the group. If it's an intergenerational group, young people may want to go off and be by themselves and have conversations that are specific to them and to their needs. So we want to be and encourage uh, improvisation, encourage flexibility, and encourage 
um, the kind of uh, kind of experimentation that would help expand these groups and make them of maximal use to people. There are certain re- requirements that we think are very important. You know, one respect for people's stories and feelings. Two, uh, a focus on history. That's the thing I think that is our value added, always emphasizing that we need to understand not only general history, community history, but also family history as a way of, uh, of, of emancipating ourselves emotionally. Uh, so those are the, 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 the sort of key elements that we have that make an emotional emancipation circle and emotional emancipation circle, in addition to um, the emotional wellness skills that we think are so important. And this idea of understanding the narrative that is guided by the lie of black inferiority and the lie of white superiority and moving from that narrative to the new narrative that we're writing for ourselves collectively and the new narrative we're writing for ourselves individually. So those are the sort of central pieces. But around that, we encourage facilitators to be as creative as they need to be. I mean, as African people, we are very creative. We need to be creative in order to respond to the needs of the group. Does that answer your question? Uh, well, I was just asking for the listener, but I think it uh, okay. has clarified if it hasn't uh, for the female because she dropped off. Uh, if you want to dial back in, if, if you need further clarification around your question or what have you, feel free to chime back in and I'll uh, get you back on right. with Enola Aird. Uh, or write, or write, write us at infocommunityhealingnet.org and we'd be happy to continue the conversation. Absolutely. That's info community healing net. Yeah. In, info at community healing net.org. Gotcha. Info at community healing net.org. Uh, the caller at six, four, nine, two, six, four, nine, two. I think that's joy. Did you have a question for Enola air? You should be with us. Uh, hello everyone. Um, yes, this is, this is joy. Um, I, I had a question around the structure of the group. Are they, is, is it like open to anyone across um, all income levels, all education levels, all religions, or is it, or are, you know, just for the sake of, you know, kind of maybe reduction in conflict, are they grouped by certain criteria or, or exactly how it, is it structured? Again, in, in, in keeping with the spirit of flexibility that I uh, talk, talked about a little bit earlier, it can be both, right? It can be... It can be a mix. It can be people who live in a certain neighborhood. It can be people who live in a, you know, who are, who are going to a particular church. It can be uh, that church reaching out to the neighborhood. It's for black people in general, black people who feel a need to be together to work on emotional emancipation, healing, wellness, and empowerment. And sometimes it may be necessary uh, once a group gets started, to, to revise the group a little bit, to make it fit the needs of, 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 of its members in a particular way. Again, we try to be flexible and improvisational. Um, as long as there are those core elements that I talked about before, um, we encourage and support flexibility. You know, I was in a similar thing when I um, lost my husband um, of a bereavement group for, you know, young widows with children. 
And mm-hmm. as I'm thinking about it, it, it did, it helped tremendously because you know, we had no clue. You know, it's like all of us were, you know, we lost our husbands suddenly or, or wives and we had these young children and none of us knew what mm-hmm. to do. And it was a facilitated group. So I understand. So I would assume that it's facilitated. Yes. And, or, okay. And, um, it and, and it did help. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, so, we, so we, I, I would look forward to joining something like that or, or even trying to start it in my area. Wonderful. Or, wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah. For, thank Is you for sharing. Should mm-hmm. and, and I for, email you then? Or? Yes, yes, please do. Info okay. at Community Healing Net. Um, right. As I said, communityhealingnet.org, um, we've got, I didn't say this, but we have a, a very long waiting list at this point um, okay. because we, people are, you know, it's kind of, it is an idea that seems to, it's time has come. People are very interested. We're very, very excited. And we're trying to raise the funds and the resources to be able to do the training because the notion is that this should not be something that people have to pay for. At most, it should be a nominal fee or some kind of goodwill donation, free will donation. We want this to be accessible to everybody. So we're trying to raise the funds so that we can send people there, bring the resources, do the training, uh, and also then offer the ongoing support. We have a portal for people who've been trained called the Way Back Home, through which the intention is that we would stay together, do uh, kind of updating training, share lessons learned, make whatever adjustments are necessary to make sure that people are being served in the best way possible. So it sounds awesome. Awesome. I just had one other thought, you know, kind of looking at, you know, what's been going on with Ferguson and, you know, Black Lives Matter. They're starting to receive a significant amount of white backlash. So I wonder, is that part, is that also incorporated into the program or has it been given some uh, thought? The, the, how to, how to respond to white backlash or has, has, yeah. Yes, or how to um, yeah yeah how to navigate through that aspect of it. Yeah, we 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 do actually. Some some of our groups have spent a lot of time, kind of anticipating reactions and developing responses to them, right? So one one group has actually gone through the process of beginning to identify, you know, what are some of the things that we hear from white people that that we really want to spend some time developing empowering responses to. Um, and, you know, groups have begun to do that. So that's one thing to do. Um, again, groups can decide for themselves how to, you know, what particular projects they want to, to deal with and the notion of how we deal with white people uh, in empowering ways, in liberating ways, is certainly uh, an agenda item that I think more than one uh, emotional emancipation circle has at least broached and begun to, to, to think about. But in the first instance, we want to think about ourselves and and what we need to be as healthy as possible. Um, and, and sometimes what you do need is, is, a, is a very good empowering response that can just, you know, mm-hmm 
shut people down or make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we I know what you mean by that, and that yeah that that's something that people have talked about. Well, thank you, and thank you for all you do. Thank you. I don't want to appreciate that joy. Uh, there was somebody else that had dialed in, but then. I, I lost their hand. So if you had dialed in, if you had a hand up, if you had a question for uh, Enola Air, just uh, press star six again. If you had a question, uh, if something happened, uh, just you can hang up and dial back in again, and I'll be on the lookout to get your uh, get your hand. Uh, you also uh, wrote an article. Um, Let's keep the door to bio technological <laughs> eugenics closed. Uh, you wrote this mm-hmm. in February of 2014. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, some of the, or at least what I thought, one of the more important points. Uh, further down in the article, you write, uh, scientists have for many years been using biotechnologies to breed what they consider to be better plants and animals, authorizing uh, this particular form of uh, genetic engineering would... I'm lost my place. Authorizing this particular form of genetic engineering could open the door to a new brand of eugenics in which parents pursue the project of creating better children. According to cell biologist Stuart Newman, the genetic design of future offspring, even with the limited objective of making these future children more normal, will open the door to attempts to pick and choose characteristics. Uh, I think this got a lot of uh, attention last year. I'd even seen some other articles about it this year uh, where a lot of this started. I think there were certain families where the mothers, they couldn't produce uh, certain, I think it was uh, mitochondrial uh, DNA or just material that they could not produce in the uh, course of having children. And so they were getting DNA material from a third person to bring into this process. And people were talking about this and is this ethical and what does this mean? What are the implications for the future? And I think you lay out in the article, at least to me, it seems very clear uh, that this could end up being something that kind of leads into eugenics exactly as I just said. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are your concerns and how has this evolved since the time that you wrote this report in 2014? Mm. Right. Um, well, I, let me just be clear. The, the, I have um, two sort of focal points in, in the work that I do. One is Community Healing Network and the other is Mothers for a Human Future. I wrote that article in my capacity as um, uh, kind of founder of Mothers for a Human Future. So there's, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some relationship between these two initiatives that I do, uh, I think it's rooted in, in a desire for, uh, as a mother, for, for uh, to help preserve and respect the dignity and the humanity of, of, of all people. So in the case of the, the mitochondrial DNA, it has to do with a defect, right? So that this defect could get um, passed down to the child. And, you know, bad health effects could uh, flow from that. And the, the idea was to create a three-parent child which would have the DNA from three individuals, sperm from uh, the, the, the man, and... Um, egg material from two different women, one in which the 
defective mitochondria was removed and healthy mitochondria substituted. Something to that effect. I'm, I'm not, you know, sure that I'm remembering it exactly, but it's roughly that kind of um, uh, substitution, if you will. And one can say, well, this would be really good because it would um, help to minimize the transmission of disease. The problem with it is that there are other ways to, to do that um, that do not have to do with genetically modifying um, children. The, the three-parent baby would be the first of its kind, right? It would be a fundamentally different kind of human being than we have had up till now. Because up until now, we've had two-parent human beings. If you start down that road of sort of picking and choosing genetic material from different parents to create human beings, you really do have the prospect of objectification, commodification of our children and the prospect of being able to, as I said in the article, pick and choose traits. We've already done that to some degree in um, two-parent situations where through um, in vitro fertilization, people may choose the, the, the gender of a child. People may choose other qualities of a child. We're already marching down the road to commodification and objectification of children. And uh, we, I felt in writing that article that, that this was something that we needed to, to raise alarms about. Uh, this year, there, you know, with the way that science goes, we're constantly moving forward and the technology is constantly being uh, advanced. So this year, um, the techniques that were used last year are even more perfected and even more likely to lead us down the path of what uh, one uh, kind of thought leader on this point, Francis Fukuyama, has called a post-human future, a future in which um, humanity as we understand it really gets changed from, uh, you know, having two parents to maybe having three parents, maybe having four parents. Um, the European community, which has had a lot of experience with eugenics as a result of the uh, experience with Germany and the Nazis, has said that this kind of manipulation of genetic material to create human beings should be prohibited. I believe that there ought to be an international treaty that prohibits um, this kind of human genetic modification and that there ought to be a sort of broadened approach that says any kind of fundamental alteration of the human species right, that changes the nature of what it means to be human, that that ought to be prohibited. It's interesting to me that... Um, there hasn't been more uh, advocacy and activism around this issue. Um, we found it kind of difficult to, to get traction on this. And part of the reason is 
we live in a culture that is already focused on self-indulgence, instant gratification, and materialism, and people kind of just think that uh, technological progress is great. We shouldn't question it. We should just keep going, right, because of the the, the notion of you know, capitalism is that, you know, if it's good, just keep doing it. Um, and we've lost the ability to um, set boundaries, set limits on ourselves. And so we are continuing to walk down that road. We're much further than we were in February of Fe- February of 2014. And I don't see any serious um, opposition to this. I was hopeful that mothers might be a constituency that would say, you know, we don't want to change human reproduction as we've known it for all of human history. Uh, Maybe there's still room for that mobilization, but so far people have just been, you know, kind of going along. Wow. The, uh, I, I think it's important. Uh, I was glad I was able to read because you have several reports on this subject. Uh, I think it's important, and I see, the implica- I see racist implications, glaring oh, racist. Oh, uh, yes, please. That, that, <laughs> that's very important because the, the bottom line is that um, when people think about designer babies, if, you, if you, you look up articles on designer babies and see what those babies look like, they do not look like us. So you're absolutely right that the the implications are profound. And in fact, there might be people who look like us who might choose to have very different kind of babies. Mm. Mm. For the reasons that we've already discussed, the internalization of racism, the devaluing of black lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's hugely important. And I think uh, Dr. Welsing, Dr. Rasayan, a few of our guests that have come on that also have kind of been paying attention uh, to this issue, which you rightly point out, does not get a lot of traction at all. This is not one that's even to catch on and people are not connecting, making the racist connections that I think that you just pointed out. Um, we're talking about all, I mean, thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, billions of dollars into research on all of these fertility problems and what have you. Mm-hmm. And how can we correct this? And this is geared towards white fertility problems. This is not anything mm-hmm. where we're going in and, oh, wait a minute, black people are having these difficulties and we need to get their birth rates up. It's very, very different if you look at. And I think if you remember Shafia Monroe for listeners, uh, she's the founder, president of the International a society for traditional childbearing and she taught i mean you talk about valuing black lives she said man look at the way a pregnant white woman is treated and the way a pregnant mm. black woman is treated and i mean wow it is just huge she was even saying she because i think she would also say that she is an activist mother she said mm. as a black mother who has multiple degrees, grad school, the whole nine. I'm a professional. I'm not on welfare. I'm taking Mm -hmm. care of myself. I'm married, the whole nine. And when I go to have a child, it's, oh, my God, you're having a child? Ooh, really? (laughs) It's not, oh, that's one. She said it is never. Yes, congratulations. That's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Whoopee, another black child. That's never it. I mean, (laughs) it is such a, a stark contrast 
where we can have all this research and we can bend over backwards to make sure that white people can produce and have children and black people having it's what can we do to minimize what can we do to reduce their their birth yeah we we are going to bring the value of black lives into all these new technologies absolutely and they're coming at us fast they're coming at us under the radar under the radar um because you know people are just not paying attention to it and 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 i you know i think we got terribly demoralized even when people pay attention to it um there doesn't seem to be any righteous indignation there doesn't seem to be wait a minute wait a minute we're going down the road to 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 making a break with human reproduction as we've known it throughout all of human history and there's no wait a minute stop before you move any further right it's just like let's just keep going let's just keep going and that's the problem the logic of what robert bella called money world values is that you know as long as you can do it do it as long as people want to be able to pay, can pay for it do it there just absolutely is no logical stopping point in um in this kind of capitalism and it's a very very dangerous dangerous uh place to be uh for every human being but in particular uh human beings who look like us absolutely absolutely uh the caller at nine seven was it 9769? 9769. Did you have a question for Enola Aird? You should be with us. Hi, um, greetings, Gus and Miss Aird. Um, I had a question about the circles, but um, I thought, um, Miss Aird, what you had to say about um, eugenics with, um, and um, family planning was really interesting. So, uh, my question on that is um, I noticed that um, in Europe they're doing a lot of like, um, like sex education, I think in Denmark. I'm urging, I think, like the teenagers there to have more births and everything. Um, and I've been reading a lot more scientific articles on this um, and about, you know, this mitochondrial DNA and, you know, three-parent families. So um, my question is, you know, what racist implications do you think it will have for non-white people who aren't so up on, I guess, the science of all of this, you know, eugenics and, like, family planning um, what do you think this means for non-white people? Because I'm sure they're not planning out their children like, um, I guess, you see how Europeans are doing it. Right. Um, I think the implications are not good. I think that existing, as I said before, existing discriminatory patterns will be amplified, dramatically amplified, if these technologies take hold. And they are quietly taking hold. Um, so I think it is definitely something that, that we black people ought to be paying attention to. The problem is that it's very, very hard because racism keeps us at the basic needs level of the hierarchy of needs. So we're worried about food, we're worried about housing, we're worried about that job or the second job or not having a job at all. And while we worry about those things, we can't be participants in what should be and is not 
a vigorous public conversation, international public conversation, about the implications for the human future in general uh, of these technologies. Right on. Uh, Double-checking last time, that person from a blocked number, did you have a question for Enola Aird? Uh, we had her back on the line. All good. All should be uh, taken care of. Did you have a question, or were you just listening in? Um, good evening. Yes, we can hear you. Hello? Yes, we can oh, hear you. Okay. Um, good evening, um, Gus, and to your guests. I, I apologize because I wasn't uh, listening the whole time, so I... Um, I hope I'm not uh, going to cause any problems with that. But I have a question. I have two questions, one for you also, Gus. Um, did I hear um, your guest say that um, the um, programs are going to be faith-based, did I, or was I, did I, was I misunderstanding? Hello? I'm sorry. Could you repeat? Okay. Did I, I thought I heard the mention of faith-based. Maybe that was in reference to... AA, um, is that supposed to be somewhat applicable to um, these groups or, or, or Oh, or not? Uh, the, the, uh, did the I groups, hear that correctly? Right. The groups are... Um, yeah, and I'm sorry, in whose space, if that is correct? Okay, it's, sorry, it's not... It, it, it's Right. They're, the groups are not intended to be um, religious or sectarian in any way. Um, but they're not at odds with faith, so that people who wish to, you know, churches, uh, mosques that wish to sponsor emotional emancipation circles are welcome to do so, but the notion is that, that it's not a space for, you know, sort of proselytizing about any particular faith or any particular religion, nor is it a space for proselytizing about um, uh, partisan politics or, you know, uh, any other issue other than emotional emancipation for black people. So um, it was originally the Community Healing Network did come out of uh, an Episcopal church called St. Luke's here in New Haven, Connecticut, um, but it is not a religious organization. It's not sectarian in any way. It really is focused on attempting to draw into the movement for emotional emancipation the broadest cross-section of black people possible. And so to, to break down divisions is what our, our main goal is, so that we can, can focus uh, with clarity on the question of healing. And also, um, could you get, did you get some clarity on the affiliation with the UN um, because uh, especially given the implications for the role of the UN uh, being involved, uh, you know, with um, I'm sure you were the latest cases of um, abuse of people of, of color uh, and the lawsuits sure. pending in regards to um, them. Um, how does that? Do you, my reference, but, my reference to the UN was simply mm -hmm. uh, reference to the UN designated International Decade for People of African Descent. Which uh -huh. is an you know sort of an umbrella uh, designation created to focus attention on the condition and the needs of people of African descent around the world. We're not we're not in relationship with the UN in in that way in any way. Um, I guess I was just um, 
Well, let me just take up that because that's too long. Um, but, <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, there's been a history of um, this type of um, community uh, healing, if you would, you know, will because of the, the what used to be called the consciousness raising groups in the '60s, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're probably familiar with that. You know, um, yeah. And of course, I beg your pardon. I am. Oh yeah. So. Um, you know, and it was kind of, and I'm just wondering, you know, because uh, I think, for example, like, um, well, I know uh, Dr. Bobby Wright and the other people um, in the community, they were like free, and and also the Nation of Islam used similar types of um, um, programs. So I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned that people that are be facilitators, um, anyone can be facilitators. Is that correct? You know, so one does not have to have a particular background. Um, such, right? right, right. And, and the, the training is provided by the Association of Black Psychologists and other people trained by the Association of Black Psychologists, yes. Okay, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Great. Glad we were able to get that. Uh, for folks, if you would like more information, uh, again, the address, communityhealingnet.org. Uh, and it should be Facebook group, uh, the Facebook pages and all that. Uh, we'll link it. If you can't find it or what have you, you can let me know and I can send it to you, what have you. But communityhealingnet.org. Uh, and it should have information. You can get a, uh, read about the summit that's coming up, the vision uh, for 2019, the importance of that. If you want to donate, uh, if you have questions, anything, uh, you can check it out right there. You should be able to email as well if you want to get more information. Uh, and you can RSVP. If you uh, want to be in attendance uh, to get more information and network uh, with the upcoming summit, uh, really appreciate having you back on the program. Uh, Miss Aird has been grand uh, second time around. Uh, I definitely hope uh, that we have some listeners who go to the summit uh, and or people who pick up the emotional emancipation circles, start doing them in their own area. Uh, you can report back on how it goes and, and how it's able to help other black people out. But definitely we appreciate the information and we'll be looking forward to uh, your much needed work uh, down the road. Thank you so much for sharing some of your Monday evening with us. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. For sure, for sure. Again, uh, Enola Air, second time with us on the program. Check out more of their work, uh, communityhealingnet.org. Thank you so much, and uh, take care for the rest of your evening, Miss Aird. All right. right. Yes, ma'am. Bye-bye. Take care. Context of white supremacy. Thanks for the folks as well for being patient. Thank you to Miss Aird as well for being patient. We had some... Uh, disruptions uh, right towards the end but thankfully we were able to uh, work those out and folks are still able to uh, get their questions uh, answered uh, at the end uh, if folks had anything that they uh, wanted to get in uh, any thoughts on on the information that they heard or or if we have folks I wish I'd said it earlier if there are any of our listeners who are listening who have participated in the uh, emotional emancipation circles and you you know have any feedback that you want to share with folks from your experience what it was like uh, you can feel free to get that in as well I think that would be uh, definitely appropriate uh, we will take a quick commercial break. I had one article uh, that I was going to share a little bit from. And then, uh, like I said, I'll I'll give folks an opportunity. If they have anything they want to share, they can do so. And then we'll get ready to wrap things up for the day. But we'll be right back after uh, our commercial break. Context of white supremacy. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? 
Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny? Smiling when you are not happy? Agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and sheet design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. everyone welcome this is justice with the cows radio program if you want to learn about understand and counter racism white supremacy be sure not to miss a cows episode we keep them jammed packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism white supremacy asap also to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts Co-hosting the Cows Radio Program, please visit my blog, Just Do Justice Today. Blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy. Again, we should be back on Friday. Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy Study Session Number Nine. We are almost done. Right at the finish line, uh, tune in uh, this Friday. Again, hope it has been a constructive investment of time and energy for the folks who have kept up with the book study session uh, over the past, I don't know, month and a half or so uh, that we've been on uh, Stephen Cantrowitz's biography of Ben Tillman. This Friday, coming up. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we should have other programs uh, before Friday. I'm trying to get some of the folks uh, to come on to give a little bit more information about Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we'll post uh, when we get firm program times and dates. Uh, it'll be posted on Black Talk Radio Network, the Facebook page, etc. Uh, as we move forward uh, with that. Uh, the one article that I was going to read, as I said, uh, you can you can go to the Times-Picayune, which is uh, NOLA. Dot com n o l a dot com uh, and they have a whole section where you can go back and check out a lot of the articles and things that they printed 
uh, all of their full, you can like get the full paper. You can download the full papers from like August 28th or 29th of 2005, like right before Hurricane Katrina hit all the way through November. You can, I think, get all of the papers. You can read them online or you can download them if you like. And uh, it's just fascinating to go back and look at the pictures, what they were saying, uh, the reports um, about the death toll, everything. It's it's just fascinating uh, for folks who are interested in that. One of the articles uh, written by a black writer, the uh, Times-Picayune, he was actually in Spike Lee's documentary, When the Levees Broke. Uh, His report is uh, seeking help in New Orleans. People instead find death unrest. Now, this was... Uh, written September or published uh, September 4th, 2005. So this is like the end of the first week. I think this is one week exactly after the storm uh, hit. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but again, the author, this is uh, a black male. I says, by Friday afternoon, the old man's body was beginning to decompose, sitting in the lawn chair where he died four days earlier outside the Ernest N. Memorial Convention Center. The pungent stench of death wafted from under the dingy blanket that draped his corpse. He had become all but invisible to a sea of the living that staggered from the curbs and into the streets not far from his body. The small children, many suffering from heat rash and hunger, who huddled with family on the sidewalk outside the convention center, sat quietly and tearless by the sides or on the laps of helpless adults. This is where flood survivors hoped they would find food, where they hoped to find water, and the rumored evacuation buses that many people talked about, but no one had ever seen until Saturday. All they'd found there was despair and more death. They'd survived killer winds and floods, but now many of the old and sick were dying from what many believed was a lack of medicine and water. Officials said the crowd outside the convention center had swelled to 25,000 people. For four days, there was no sign of law enforcement or city, state, or federal officials, several of the displaced said. There was no updated evacuation schedule and there was no food. The young men were getting restless and angry. Evacuees said some of them were armed and most were willing to take extreme measures if somebody didn't do something to save them. Many said they braved chin-high floodwaters to get to the convention center from neighborhoods such as Carrollton and Treme. They said they came from places where their neighbors had drowned and where entire families had vanished. We're being treated like animals, Danielle Porter, 25, said Friday. Look around, man. Look at the bodies. And there's no way for us to leave. Brothers have been stealing cars, but they can't make it over the bridge. It's not right. We're humans, too. The old man was said to be the first of many to die at the center. Wednesday, an elderly woman was found dead, slumped in her wheelchair near a curb 20 feet from the convention center doors, said Bob Payne, 57, a retired journalist, turned refugee. Payne said a teenage girl was the next to die, rumored to have been raped and her throat sliced open. I'm just going to go ahead and interject to say that that is a bold lie. Uh, The governor, the mayor, the police superintendent, I mean, it had just been a rash of public officials at this time uh, have all stepped forward and said that they could not firm 
uh, confirm any of these rapes in the Superdome. And I think certainly if someone had been raped and their throat slashed, they probably would have put that body out first and foremost to further indict uh, black people uh, in this event. But I, in my opinion, that's just important because this is the sort of thing that was rampant at the time, reporting things like this that could never be substantiated, could never be confirmed, uh, just to make it seem like things were terrible and it was all black people's fault. Anyway, uh, they took her body, this allegedly raped and throat slit female, they took her body and put it on the third floor in a walk-in freezer, Payne said. Payne said he had seen at least seven dead during the three days he spent sleeping on the ground outside the center. It was absolutely horrendous, Payne said after being rescued by a reporter friend who he'd seen through the crowd. I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't believe that this was America I was seeing. Don't think the army out here is the only ones with guns, said Mark Corris, 29. These young dudes got guns, too, and if something don't change soon, something's going to happen. He pointed toward a group of military police officers holding rifles and bottles of water. Look at them. They got water so cold it'll freeze your tongue. But look at what we got. Nothing or it's boiling hot. <laughs> Witnesses said a small riot broke out Wednesday when refugees saw rescuers and big trucks carting off white tourists by the dozens, leaving many black people to fend for themselves. You should have seen them gathering up white folks, said Kim Jackson, 39. They had a big 18-wheeler with the National Guard walking alongside them, but they got us here like dogs. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will stop there. Uh, it goes on. Uh, to offer uh, interesting commentary about crazy and mischievous behavior and continuing to call people refugees. Again, this is a black author uh, who wrote this. He's in uh, the documentary, uh, we, uh, excuse me, When the Levees Broke uh, by Spike Lee. But this is, uh, I would say this is, I would say, representative of a lot of what was reported uh, at the time. I don't remember too many outlets uh, talking about near riots because uh, rescuers were coming in and taking out busloads of white people and leaving black people behind. I do not remember a lot of reports about that, although I have heard uh, other people here and there saying that they felt that was what was happening. Even some of the folks in uh, some of the documentaries that I've seen suggested that they thought that was what was happening. Some of the rescue helicopters and what have you were going to white neighborhoods and leaving black people to drown or fend for themselves. But uh, I think Enola Ayer, she said history is important, and uh, I think this is a, a significant traumatic event that uh, just has so many layers of racism. I also think it's important with this event that the city was actually evacuated for almost a month. That is, I think, significant for a myriad of reasons that you pretty much couldn't even access this area for about four weeks. It was pretty much military personnel, very limited amount of press and a few other folks, but they pretty much kicked everybody out. Um, yeah, that just to me, to me suggests that white people might have had some other mischievous things going on with 30 days in a whole city that is pretty much emptied out. Uh, if uh, folks have any comments, again, if anybody has participated in the emotional emancipation circles, if you have anything you want to share or comments you want to get in before we wrap things up, you can do so now. Uh, any of the folks that are on the line, uh, your line should be open. Feel free. Uh, folks are content. That's fine, too. Any of the, the folks that uh, had a hand up, had the 
any comments they want to get in or is everybody content soon folks might be uh content that is cool in the gang as well uh if anyone i did want to make sure i gave out the information if anybody has done the emotional emancipation circles if you're not able to participate or share a thought today that's cool that's fine as well but down the road if you want to chime in to share anything that might be uh constructive just to kind of hear what your experience is if you think it's constructive uh, as i said i know some of the people that have listened to the program they have done the whole facilitator uh course with everything and uh have been participating uh, in these circles and they thought it was constructive and they're working to try to get other people uh, to participate, uh, particularly people that are in the uh, New York area. Uh, I can give out the information again. If folks are interested, uh, they should have groups meeting once a month uh, from now until the end of the year. Uh, And as I said, they already have some dates scheduled for the beginning of 2016. Uh, This is supposed to be in New York City. Uh, It's with the Association of Black Social Workers Harlem office uh, in New York City. I have the address, phone number where you can call to uh, reserve your seat just to let them know how many uh, that you want to attend. So they have an idea of how many folks to expect. Uh, But just let me know and I can get you the contact information. I can email you the flyer. I'm going to go ahead and put this on the Facebook group so people can uh, see the information uh, for themselves. People that are in the New York area. Uh, The next session should be September 11th. Uh, I think we already missed the one for August, but September 11th is the next one scheduled, and it should be 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., and that would be uh, obviously New York local time uh, coming up next month. Uh, Just let me know if you want to participate. You can drop me an email or Facebook or what have you, and I can send you the information. Uh, And please, if you attend, let us know uh, what your experience is like. Uh, might encourage, inspire some other folks to uh, start a similar activity. Uh, but the next one is September 11th. Drop me an email if you would like more details. Uh, check again. Anybody have any, any comment they want to make sure they got in before we wrap things up? Any comments? Right on. Soon folks are good. Uh, As I said, uh, just have to check Black Talk Radio Facebook page and we should be back uh, before Friday uh, with some of the programs. I'm really hoping we can get some of the folks uh, who have written about or done films on their Katrina experience to get additional uh, information uh, about all that. I hope, you know, at least folks see some value to that and are learning a little bit more about racism and or perhaps even just remembering some of those images that just looking at some of the newspaper images. I hadn't read all the articles. I don't think I was looking at the New Orleans papers regularly uh, back in 2005. But just seeing some of the photos that they had, it reminded me of images that I had forgotten about. Just images. I think the one that stood out, I think I'll see if I can find it, uh, where it was a black male. I think he had stolen like a mail truck. And I mean, again, I think 80% of the city was underwater. It might have been more than 80% of New Orleans was underwater. So, I mean, you had all kinds of state city vehicles, school buses uh, that drowned, that were underwater, that could have been used to try to help get some people out so they didn't drown. Uh, but it was a black male. And I think he had taken a mail truck and was using it to go around and round up people because there were so many elderly people and disabled people and folks who just didn't have the means uh, to to walk out or to evacuate. So he was using this mail truck to try to get people uh, to safety. 
and enforcement officials ended up uh, pulling him over at gunpoint and snatching him out of the vehicle and treating him like he had, uh, you know, smacked the president or you know done something uh, just hugely incorrect. Like this was a, a national incident that he took this mail truck to try to save some black lives. Uh, and I, I had totally forgotten about it, but it was just it was tons uh, of image. I, I just remember being inundated with photographs like that black people with all kinds of guns on them and being handcuffed and spread out all you can imagine all of the black lives matter protests and everything that people have been talking about since Ferguson uh, last August. That's what, that's the recollection that I have. It was, it was tons of images of black people destitute suffering uh, in this, you know, horrific event, not getting any medical assistance, not getting food, water, basic human needs not being met. It was that on one hand and then tons of images of all oh, their looters and all oh, their raping people and slitting people's throats and all this other uh, just not constant insults, constant insults. <laughs> that's uh, that's the stream that just came to mind. But uh, we'll have more to share on that and, and the plethora of other incidents that are, are taking place right now and around the world. Uh, if you have uh, problems, complaints, gripes, suggestions, uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, you can send them, email them until justice at Gmail dot com until justice at gmail.com you can hit us on twitter as well at until justice at until justice if you have questions suggestions gripes thoughts whatever the case may be uh feel free to chime in as i said this weekend compensatory call in looking forward to workplace racism any other observations uh that folks have about things that have stood out over the past seven days uh thanks everyone for tuning into the broadcast i hope it was a constructive investment of your monday evening and we should be back soon uh, again remain codified no time to be messing around or thinking that you know white folks are not on their assignment looking to cause us as many problems as they can uh you can have fun enjoy the summer as it winds down uh but you still want to be codified and specifically uh, i would say buckle up every time you get into the vehicle uh that's just an easy one uh do everything that you can to minimize the likelihood of having contact with race soldiers that's just an easy one that you can do. Just have that in mind that they're going to be looking for any possible reason to stop you over, harass you, toss you in a cage and ruin your life. Just do any precaution that you can to minimize that likelihood. Buckling your seatbelt might help. Also, alcohol sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, any intoxicants, uh, it would be best to leave all that stuff alone uh, until white supremacy has been replaced, vanquished. Uh, but in the meantime, if you cannot do sobriety, at least be codified. Again, you do not want to be around white people who are under the influence, intoxicated in any way. You are putting yourself in harm's way. I would even be mindful about other non-white people that you are around if they are under the influence. Uh, it's just too many times where we end up making terrible decisions as a result of not being lucid. We're under the influence. We're intoxicated and we're just not thinking correctly in a system that is already designed for black people to be constantly abused terrorized and suffering uh, just keep that in mind definitely don't want to be intoxicated behind the wheel i would even say be careful if you're going to be a passenger or even a pedestrian uh, because race soldiers they are just constantly uh, looking eager to cause us problems and molest 
black citizens. Keep all that in mind. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.